Ohio's Congressman Jim Jordan finally came up in hearing number five of the January 6th committee. He wasn't one of those who asked for a pardon from himself, as some of his congressional colleagues did, but he did ask the White House about whether it would be granting pardons. And as the hearing members have pointed out, you don't ask for a pardon unless you've done something wrong. Interesting stuff. I expect we'll hear more of Jim Jordan in the coming hearings. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston on a Friday to wrap up the news. These hearings are living up to their billing. They have been just fascinating. It's amazing how it's a concentric. They're like moving closer to the center of the circle. So there you can see how they're building their case from the outside in, and it's very fascinating. Yeah, well, I, the thing is, I don't think it's revelatory because if you were paying attention for the past year, year and a half, you knew Donald Trump was trying to stage a coup. Everything he did was intended to maintain power, even though he shouldn't have. But it's just to see it put together this way with the statements they're making, and it's all Republicans. I mean, Republicans are leading the charge on the committee. Republicans are the ones testifying. So it's really hard to make this say this is a partisan witch hunt, which Jim Jordan keeps trying to say. It's not working. The the evidence is clear, and anybody watching can see it. And that's why I get all the emails from people who are now really afraid that the country's going to dissolve because there's a bunch of people out there that still believe this nonsense. Let us begin. Is Intel seriously threatening not to build its big chip plant near Columbus because of inaction in the U.S. Congress on a bill that is much needed to help computer chip manufacturers? Lisa, it feels like it's more of a stunt. It is. It actually sounds like a strong arm tactic to me, and I can't say that I blame them. But Intel, to be clear, is not canceling its project. Its $100 billion plant will continue to be built, but they are delaying a ceremonial groundbreaking that was scheduled for July 22nd on that plant in New Albany. So uh, the CEO of Intel, Patrick Gelsinger, called Governor DeWine, you know, and I'm sure DeWine was clutching his just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But they're basically frustrated over inaction by the Congress on the CHIPS Act funding. There's a sticking point in that act. There's $52 billion in incentives, and it's part of this Democratic-supported larger initiative called the America Competes Act. And the GOP is not wild about the America Competes Act package, which totals $300 billion in total. So they, they really want Congress to just pass these acts and get the money flowing. Intel spokesperson Linda Cayenne says that the Ohio plant is heavily dependent on CHIPS Act funding. And she said, quote, it is time for Congress to act. This all came about while Intel was giving reporters a tour inside its Arizona plant. Our own Andrew Tobias was out there. So I think this was all part of an orchestrated public relations push to get this thing passed. I'm a little bit surprised that the Democrats are still trying to pump this thing with all the extra money because we have hyperinflation right now because of all the money that's been pumped into the economy. 
And you'd think that they might be a little more hesitant to to keep feeding that out of control fire. And let's face it, this is needed. This this plant is needed. All the automakers, remember they couldn't get chips for their cars. Mm -hmm. We need another chip plant in America. You would think that in Washington they could get together, get this done, and then go fight about the other stuff separately. Right, right. So I think they, yeah, I guess the Chips Act falls under America Compete. So yeah, yeah, they just say, just pass this part of it and we can consider the rest of it later. Yeah, this is too important to be playing politics with, but they're playing politics with it. Anyway, I, I was when we first saw the news, we thought, oh, no. But then it was clear they're not stopping their site work. This is just the ceremonial groundbreaking, which is kind of a useless event anyway. <laughs> it's a bunch of a bunch of guys in suits holding gold-plated shovels <laughs> that look ridiculous and awkward. How many times have we seen that photo? <laughs> Moving on, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Has Cleveland learned nothing from the Tamir Rice case? Can it actually be true that the city failed to conduct rigorous background checks on a whole bunch of people who recently became Cleveland police officers? How do we know we don't have another unqualified officer like the officer Loman who killed Tamir? Courtney, this is one of the more distressing stories we've had in the past month. What did it say? Yeah, this is real concerning. So the consent decree monitor overseeing Cleveland's, you know, agreement with the U.S. Justice Department, Hassan Aiden, released a report that, that found that the city didn't do thorough background checks on this new class that, that hit the streets in March. They're out there policing now, you know. So the monitor found that the city didn't really look into issues that candidates had at prior jobs. They didn't you know, properly vet and dive into criminal charges for at least one new young officer. And they didn't even try to find out whether officers had dis- displayed like signs of bias against racial and ethnic groups before hiring them. If you get into the details of the story, these are all very troubling examples of how people make it into the ranks of, of, of Cleveland police. You know, the monitor went so far as to say that they reviewed the files and they found the background investigations the city conducted to be, quote, superficial. When we should point out, this was a class under the Frank Jackson administration, not the Justin Bibb, who's the Cleveland mayor now. So we don't know what's happening under his watch. But I I was stunned when I heard this story was coming, given what happened with Timothy Lohman. I mean, the guy was completely unqualified to be a police officer. We found that out. Cleveland police never had gone to look and and we know what happened. It was a disaster for the for the city and it killed a 12 year old boy. So you would think that everybody in the chain of command would say never again. We have to know everything we can about each and every person that we put a badge on and they're not. Yeah. And, and you know, you can. So you can kind of maybe get in the mind of the Cleveland police. They're they're real short-staffed. They're 200 going on 300 officers under their budgeted level. And maybe there's some, some, some need to quickly usher people into the ranks. But the monitor acknowledged that challenge of staffing and said, you know, okay, staffing's a challenge, but we also understand the risks involved in rushing to fill, the, fill out the ranks with people who are not suited to serve. You know, a couple of the concerning things that they found here is, you know, there was no screening of social media. There should be screening of social media to see if people are out there spouting, 
you know, ridiculous things in, in the lead up to them coming on to the, to the police department. Another, I think, really important thing that the monitor found was they found, quote, remarkable financial issues among many of the candidates. And the monitor pointed out officers in financial distress can can be a liability. And let's think back to short staffing and the rush to fill the ranks at the jail and the COs. Heartless felons. And, and there was like reports of, of gang involvement coming in through these young, inexperienced officers. You know, I, I can't say that anything like that, of course, is happening at Cleveland Police, but it opens the door for potential problems yeah. if, if, if these financial issues are there. So there's a lot of nitty gritty that the city needs to do a better vetting process. Right. And if and if urgency is important, then put more people into investigating the backgrounds. I mean, you don't have to slow down the movement of the class, but you could add resources to investigate who they are. It, it's a it's really a, a condemning report. And it's more evidence that we need the monitor to stick around because we're getting very good insight into how the city works if the monitor weren't here we would know none of this and so i hope the consent decree doesn't get closed down anytime soon and i guess we need to hear from justin bibb now what are you doing to make sure this doesn't happen again that'll be next you know in in one recent exchange he his spokesman did tell me he he favors social media checks for example but that doesn't nearly cover the extent of what the monitor wants to see here so yeah there's got to be reforms you think under bib yeah he's got that, that that won't cut it he needs to put out concrete action here's what i'm doing to make sure this never happens again he's been pretty good about this kind of thing but now it's on him and we'll have to ask him to find out what he's going to do i they didn't get back to us yesterday i saw in the story yeah you're listening to today in ohio What's the conflict between Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish and the county council about spending money from the opioid settlements? Budish seems to have a fully considered plan. What does the council want to do, Laura? Well, the council is just not really sure that they believe in Budish's plan, which is basically to form a $10 million opioid innovation fund to support and test new strategies and programs and technology for combating the opioid epidemic. They keep funneling money into treatment, but they want to look at other ways that they could possibly keep people off of the drugs. Or It's never really spelled out exactly what the $10 million would go toward, just new and emerging technology, so they're not just like going the same route over and over again. This would come from the, the county's $117.5 million opioid settlement fund, but council is pretty divided. They some of them are pointing to the ever-climbing drug deaths as evidence the strategies they're using aren't working. People like Jack Schron uh, and Nan Baker say they really want to try new strategies. But people like Council President Purnell Jones Jr. says that's unusual to spend $10 million on a pilot program and doesn't – They want he wants to keep the money in-house rather than putting it in the Cleveland Foundation, which could manage it. Well, the, the – Budish seems like he wants to treat people who are addicted and yeah. you, you can measure the success of that. I mean, you can easily say, okay, we're going to pay for this. We want to see the results. We want to see how many people are treated. We want to see how many then stayed off drugs for 90 days, 180 days, whatever the standards are. The council seems to be saying we want to spend money on prevention. That's not measurable. You, you know, they, they say we want to stop people from getting addicted to begin with. Well, how do you measure that? Yeah. I mean, there is, 
there are questions about that. I'm glad they're asking questions. I mean, they often have not asked hard questions, and it's great to see it. But what is the the end game? The, and and if Sharon is right that they've got programs that don't work, well, don't fund those. Go go right. across the nation, find the programs that do work. There's a lot of money here. Let's use it effectively. Yeah, Sharon gave some examples like programs attempting to reprogram the brain to end addiction. Uh, technology that ensures prescriptions are disposed of appropriately and in full to prevent abuse. Um, but the idea is that they would create a new advisory board to manage this $10 million. They would review the proposals and guide the investments over a three-year period, and they expect to see results within five years. They want experts on the med- from the medical field. They want community representatives, those with personal experience with addiction. Honestly, these people are going to know how to spend the money better than county council people who are not experts in drug addiction. All right, but, Laura, we have that. That's what the Adams board is. So is this a vote of no confidence in the board that we give millions of tax dollars to to deal with addiction? That's the whole purpose of that board. <laughs> That's what Mike Gallagher says. He says it's a slap in the face to the organizations currently providing these traditional services. So, yeah, I, I think the thing is they were this was going to be part of something that they passed um, without even discussion and they pulled it to talk about it. So you're right. I'm, this is a huge problem. It's growing. And I'm glad we're at least trying to get to the bottom of the best way to solve it. Well, we've been pounding the county council now for a long time saying they do nothing. It's good to see them actually having a conversation and putting the checks and balances on. That's the reason they're there, not to and create slush funds and squander <laughs> money on golf courses. To put this into perspective, there were 710 drug-related deaths in 2021 in the county. That's shy of the record in 2017 of 727. But think about that. That's five straight years of, of just a lot of death because of drugs that can be um, can be stopped. And so this is a big problem, and I'm glad they're addressing it. It's Today in Ohio. How much of the many millions of dollars that First Energy paid to former CEO Chuck Jones did the utility claw back after firing him and pleading guilty to paying $60 million in bribes under his leadership in the House Bill 6 scandal. Lisa, they had a clause. They could have gotten back lots of the money that they paid him. How much did they get? They got zero dollars back from <laughs> CEO Chuck Jones. This information came from an audit from the Pennsylvania Public Utilities Commission that was found and shared by the Energy Policy Institute. And it found that the First Energy Board of Directors declined to invoke its clawback provision in Jones's contract. As we know, Chuck Jones was ousted, still not charged in the House Bill 6 scandal, but he was ousted in October of 2020 and alleged as the uh, House Bill 6 mastermind. Um, he earned about $51 million during the length of the House Bill 6 time frame, which is 2017 to 2020. First Energy spokeswoman Jennifer Young says that Jones has forfeited both long and short-term compensation, but she won't say how much. She said the First Energy Board will continue to evaluate their options. And Jones's earnings in 2020 alone were $10 million before he got the boot. Yeah, I, It's really kind of staggering that they didn't get the money back. They've pleaded guilty. The company has said, yeah, all that money we paid, that was a bribe. And Chuck Jones was the CEO that they fired because he was running the company when they did it. 
and they had the provision. They can get the money back, and and it could go to the ratepayers. You could use it for all the stuff that they want to do, and they didn't. You have to wonder why. Chuck Jones, of course, has not been charged with anything. Not quite sure why, because this case has been going on forever now. It's coming up on two years since the first indictments came down, and there's lots of evidence that you would have thought would lead to an indictment. It's got you wondering whether the U.S. attorney is, is backing off on this thing. Well, but... They did have the ability, and it's uh, good reporting by the Ohio Capital Journal on finding that audit. And, you know, and as we all know, even though he remains unindicted, you know, we famously, U.S. District Judge John Adams demanded lawyers in the case, who ordered the bribes? Well, the investor's attorneys coughed up Joan's name and Senior Vice President Mike Dowling, and both of them not charged at this point. Yeah, which is bizarre. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did the Cuyahoga County Council move forward this week on determining whether the favored site for a new jail is too toxic a place to house inmates? Courtney, this took longer than it should have. Oh, well, yeah, perhaps. It's it's moving now, I suppose, and um, we'll have the results in the next three weeks. But it's worth noting, to your point, that this testing is coming after the committee was asked to vote on this as its preferred site. So it's a little weird timing there, but the committee isn't going to nail down and confirm that this is their site for the new jail until after these results are back, supposedly, and and after they get an understanding of how much it's going to cost to clean up this former Standard Oil property. So these environmental environmental testers are going to look at the ground, take water soil samples, kind of et cetera, and then hopefully that'll give us a blueprint for how any problems there would be remediated. The the consultants who are doing the testing have already said, you know, the remedies could be maintaining a, a soil cap to keep any chemicals at bay, um, containing groundwater and runoff flows, installing some kind of like vapor mitigation system and indoor air testing. So these are some of the fixes that could come through but until we get the study, we don't know what the price tag is on those fixes. Yeah, and just to remind people that the the site selection committee and the consultant they had hired were completely unaware that this site had been considered for a prison years ago and rejected because it was too toxic. And so this became very controversial. We wrote the story. We laid it all out there. And the committee, which includes the public defender and the sheriff and the prosecutor, people from all walks of life, city council president, anybody that has a stake in this, voted unanimously to stop the process, do the testing, and figure out what's what before moving forward. The consultant and one county council member wanted to move forward regardless. They're just like, yeah, we can do this, we can do this. So once the committee voted, it was up to the council to fund this. And they didn't do it right away. It took a while to get going. So it was heartening to finally see them putting the money in. I'm surprised they can get the testing done in three weeks. Yeah, that timeline seemed interesting to me as well. That seems like a quick turnaround. This is like the second part of testing. They've already done kind of like a cursory overview. So maybe that feeds into things. But in any event, if the results do come that quickly, then maybe we can get some resolution on what's going on with the jail here in the in the near future. Yeah, we should point out the site was partially cleaned at some point to be kind of an industrial storage site for trailers or something, but it, it has not been cleaned to the place where you can put people on it and you would need the state EPA 
to say that it's fit for human habitation. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's happening to an Ohio man who killed a bald eagle last year? Laura, it's not, they're not endangered anymore, but there's still huge protections for bald eagles. You can't even, if you find a feather, take it home. I saw, I saw that too. If you find a feather, you have to put it back exactly where you found it. Um, so yes, this guy's name is David B. Huff. He was in his land on Tuscaroras County looking for groundhogs when he shot and killed a bald eagle from a distance of about 100 feet. He thought he was shooting a hawk, but no, bald eagle. And as part of a plea agreement, he has to pay $10,000 fine to the court, $10,000 in restitution to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He has to have the scope rifle he used. It has to be destroyed, and he's forbidden for hunting for five years. Plus, he could be in prison for up to a year. It's a misdemeanor offense, but those are some pretty stiff policies. Why would you see why, the, the idea? Why would you shoot a hog? Right, exactly. I mean, they like, would kill the groundhogs. Yeah, it's like I, I, the whole thing makes no sense to me. Oh, I see a elegant bird. Let me kill it. Yeah, I, I don't get, I don't get it. But I had no idea how stiff the penalties were for this. And this is under the Bald Eagle and Golden Eagle Protection Act of 1940. If it had been during breeding season and a hatchling under the care had actually died because of the, the mother's death he would have been charged with a felony and face stiffer penalties but yeah so these these are part because of the cultural significance and and yeah don't don't mess with bald eagles yeah yeah he's paying the price okay it's today in ohio jim tressel is best known as the coach of the champion ohio state buckeyes from back in the day but when he left coaching he transitioned into academia now he's transitioning again courtney how so yeah, so uh, the former OSU coach, Jim Tressel. The very <laughs> cute. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Uh, you know, Tressel, he's been at, at Youngstown State since 2014 after he left OSU coaching. He's been serving as the president there. And he's now 69 years old. And it looks like he's potentially stepping down, you know, retiring. His... his uh, quote in a letter to Youngstown State students and faculty earlier this week said, you know, it's it's now only fair to have my family set the schedule. So I think we're looking at a retirement for Jim Tressel here. Well, he's 69. So, you know, I, 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 you could say he did his time. He, he got pretty good uh, acclaim at Youngstown. I mean, that's a big transition from football coach to university president. And, and it was fairly controversy free he did leave ohio state under a cloud because of the the tattoo scandal back in the day but he did he'll always be a favorite of the fans because he coached championship teams and beat michigan yeah so he's going to round out his time at youngstown state he's going to step down this coming february so he's still got some time left but chris did you read his farewell letter there was a fun little shout out for us in there Oh, I didn't see that. What did it say? Oh, I'm going to read the quote for you. When he was telling students, he said, nearly 60 years ago, I landed a job to deliver newspapers for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. (laughs) Seven mornings a week. This was appropriate training for a career in teaching, coaching, and administration to follow as I've spent the last 47 years in higher education positions working seven days a week. You know, I wrote a, a column a couple of weeks ago. I was trying to urge people to use the digital edition of The Plain Dealer. 
because if they can't get the the paper edition but the way i went into it i described how i delivered newspapers as a kid and it taught your responsibility and money handling a 12 year old an 11 year old i was overwhelmed by responses from people who delivered the plane dealer or the press as a, as kids and talking about how much it taught them about responsibility and handling money and how you treat people. And all of them, all of them though, were like, you would never let an 11 or 12 year old today go out on a mile long route, knocking on the doors of strangers to collect their money. Cause you'd be afraid there'd be predators. How it's just sad, but Trestle's right working. I don't know if any of you ever delivered, no. you know, you had to be there every day. You had a duty every day. You had to be polite with people when you went and knocked on their doors. And I don't think there's a parallel. Laura said, well, I, I think my daughter <laughs> will tell her kids about selling cookies door to door. I said, right, but you're on the sidewalk, right? She goes, oh yeah, I'm on the sidewalk. <laughs> there was nobody on the sidewalk. With the right, guys. and that's like a couple of times in one month. That, that is not a daily thing. I can, like my son mows the, the neighbor's yard and that's hard enough to get him to do it once a week, right? I cannot imagine my 11 year old <laughs> with paper wrap. I know, but we all did it. Yeah. I mean, it was like I just, it, there was yeah. no thought you were in danger right. and you know, it was nice to get the money. I had real money. Did you do it, Lisa? No, I, but my brother, my older brother, Michael, he delivered the Cleveland Press and I remember they would throw a bundle at the end of our driveway and he had to roll them all up. Back then you didn't have plastic bags to stick them in. You had to roll them a certain way so they stayed rolled when you threw him yep and so yep. yeah and he had his little canvas bag and he'd get on his bike and deliver the cleveland press yeah i yeah. i did it in the morning i had the it was the philadelphia inquirer and it you know i'd be up before dark i had in the snow i put him on a sled i mean but i i just that was formative i agree with trestle i think it does provide you the beginnings of adulthood so i, I it's too bad we don't have an equivalent Good stuff. I'm glad you brought that up, Courtney. Thank you. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, you get the good story of the day, the one that really will make people happy. What step did Governor Mike DeWine announce yesterday to remove one of the more miserable experiences that Ohioans are forced to endure every few years? Beginning Monday, this coming Monday, the 27th, driver's licenses and state ID cards can be renewed online. So you don't have to go to the BMV and stand in an interminable line. You can go to bmv.ohio.gov and click on the DL ID renewal link and they'll ask you some questions and you have to provide a document or your current license but if you have a commercial driver's license or you want to upgrade your standard license to a real ID you cannot do that online that's because of federal regulations and as you know or you may not know but the real ID now will be required to board planes starting next year so if you don't have a real ID like I do you need to get that done but can't do it online um, at a Thursday press conference, the BMV registrar, Charlie Norman, says this will require advanced authentication. They're going to do Internet protocol address tracking and fraud indicators just to make sure that, you know, people aren't getting these in a fraudulent manner. Like I said, there will be a questionnaire. You'll have to upload your current license or photo and one approved document from the BMV list to do this. Once you're approved, they will send your, your license in the mail, which is pretty cool. Also, starting July 11th, you can do vehicle title transfers online and then new drivers can take their driving knowledge test online starting next month 
All right. Well, I, as long as I don't have this go through the unemployment computer system, we'll, <laughs> we'll probably be safe. But I do feel like there's some age discrimination here. They're going to make you come in if you're 65 or, or older. Yeah, because they want to make what sure the you hell's can. That about? Well, because they want to make sure you can still drive. I mean, after a certain age, I guess they give you driving tests, you know, to make sure that you know. Sixty-five. I know. Get out of I town. Know. They just figure it's too hard for you to use the. <laughs> <laughs> that right. Total joke. Right, Total Laura. joke. All right, Laura, I'm going to send you stories to edit at 6 o'clock tonight. You're not going into the weekend. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We normally wouldn't talk about a gardening challenge on this podcast, but it's Friday. And this is about a perennial challenge for anyone who tries to grow tomatoes. We have a gardening columnist. She tackled this. Laura, what's the best way to support tomatoes as the plants get huge? So Susan Brownstein, uh, she said that like everything else with gardening, it's best to make it yourself. So Susan is fantastic. I'm super jealous of her green thumb because my garden this year is looking terrible. The deer are eating everything, but she has some beautiful tomato plants. And what she did is she basically used um, rebar, like two, two poles on either side, and then attached them so you have a, like a semi-circle type shape. And then she just used string down from the top top bar, and then she's training those tomatoes up the string. It's kind of ingenious. You can get as many plants on there as you have room for on that one bar, and it's really cheap. <laughs> I want to see what's in her garage because she's like, I just I just managed to have these bars lying around in my <laughs> garage. Um, but yeah, it seems simple and genius, and it's working for her so far. Yeah, I, I I was fascinated by it. I, you know, I do grow some tomatoes, and the, it is a challenge. They get gigantic and flop all over the place. Um, you know, I was debating over whether Lisa or you should answer this question. Lisa, you're the big gardener. Do you have any tomatoes growing? I don't grow any vegetables. The deer would just have a field day. I mean, the deer have really limited what I can grow. My neighbor a couple doors down has a vegetable garden, but she built a chicken wire cage over it to keep the deer away. Yeah, I didn't have deer problems last year with the tomatoes. I was surprised. I was ready for it. I was going to surround it. Well, I did surround it with some netting, but they, they never went for it. I don't know if it's something about the the leaves are not. Anyway, good stuff at the column will print in the Plain Dealer on Sunday, and it is on Cleveland.com. That's it for a Friday on Today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Monday.